Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep. Forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to Episode 76 of History of the Marine Corps. The History of Women in the Corps, Part 1. With World War I around the corner, we're coming up on a significant milestone in the Marine Corps. The role women played during this war had a substantial impact on the success of the United States. And with the anniversary of Ophemae Johnson and the authorization to allow women to join the Marine Corps, I thought this was the perfect time to talk about our sisters-in-arms. This is an integral part of history that deserves recognition, and we'll dive into it during the next couple of episodes. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Since we've been chronologically covering the history of the Marine Corps, we haven't had the opportunity to discuss female Marines' roles on this show. But with World War I coming up, I thought this was a good opportunity to pause on the Banana Wars and dedicate a couple of episodes to our sisters-in-arms. The history of female Marines dates back to the War of 1812. Admittedly, it's more lore than documented history, but it's still a fun story to share. At the beginning of the War of 1812, the United States saw a lot of failures. The Army underestimated the strength of Britain, which resulted in devastating and embarrassing losses for the United States. The first real success of the war didn't happen on land. It happened in the sea. On August 19, 1812, Isaac Hull, the commander of the Constitution, was sailing near Halifax, Nova Scotia. One of his lookouts spotted a sail. Hull gave chase, and an hour and a half later, he confirmed it was the British frigate Guerriere. The Guerriere was one of the best frigates in the Royal Navy. Her captain already had distinguished himself at the age of 28. But while Britain had experience, the United States had the strength, and the 56-gun Constitution advanced with its crew of 456, towards the 49-gun Guerriere and her crew of 272. At 1500, a Marine Corps drummer gave the signal and everyone rushed towards their battle stations. In charge of the Marines were First Lieutenants William Bush and John Conti. We covered this intense battle during Episode 42, Old Ironsides, but in short, 
Marines played a pivotal role in defeating the British ship. Sharpshooters provided a constant shower of musket balls into the ship's deck, stopping raids and men from operating the ship's guns. The captain of the Guerriere understood the fate of his ship, and he assembled his officers to develop a plan. The Guerriere's mast, hull, mainyard, and sails were destroyed. Everyone agreed that continuing to resist would be an unnecessary waste of lives. Normally, a ship would lower its colors as a sign of surrender, but Britain wasn't able to do so due to the excessive damage, so a gun was fired leeward, which indicated surrender. The Guerriere had 15 men killed, 63 wounded, and 24 missing. The Constitution had 7 killed and 7 wounded. The news of this victory was welcomed back in the United States, and many people celebrated in the streets. One interesting story about this battle was the case of a woman dressed as a man, serving on board the Constitution as a Marine, Louisa Baker. She released a series of pamphlets entitled the collection, The Female Marine. Now most historians agree that Louisa Baker never existed, and Nathaniel Hill Wright actually wrote the pamphlets. And although the story of Louisa Baker may just be a legend, the story of the first woman to serve in the Marine Corps is well documented. When the United States entered World War I in April 1917, thousands of men volunteered or were drafted into military service. Sixteen months later, the toll on the Marine Corps was significant, and around 20% of the Corps' strength were casualties. The Secretary of the Navy issued the following statement, quote, In my opinion, the importance of the part which our American women must play in the successful prosecution of the war cannot be overestimated. Not only those heroic women, who as Red Cross nurses, will accompany our soldiers to France, and those who at home are devoting their time, talents, and energies to work specifically connected with the war, but all of our women can and must do their part if this war is to be brought to a successful conclusion. American women have always been ready to answer the call of service and have cheerfully undergone the untold sacrifices and burdens which war places upon them so much more heavily than upon men. They are already making sacrifices and enduring hardships with the spirit which commands our intense admiration. Unquote. The National League for Women's Services and the Women's Committee of the Council of National Defense were established immediately and they organized efforts to support World War I throughout the United States. Women from all social classes answered the call, and thousands started contributing. From making bandages to helping farmers produce the nation's food supply, women played a pivotal role in World War I. On August 2nd, General Barnett wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Navy, requesting, quote, to enroll women in the Marine Corps Reserve for clerical duty at Headquarters Marine Corps and at other Marine Corps offices in the United States where their services might be utilized to replace men who may be qualified for active field service. Unquote. Secretary Daniels approved this request six days later, and throughout the night, newspapers and other Marines spread the news. Thousands of women visited recruiters and volunteered for service. There were over 2,000 in New York City alone. The first one in line was Ofa Mae Johnson. As a civilian employee, 
She worked as a clerk in the quartermaster's general office at headquarters Marine Corps. As soon as she heard the news, she rushed to the recruiter in Washington, D.C. On August 13, 1918, at the age of 40, Johnson was the first woman to enlist. Out of the thousands of women who tried to join the Marine Corps, a little over 300 would earn the title. Private Johnson continued her role as a clerk under Brigadier General Charles L. McCauley. The other new Marines were spread between the quartermaster, adjutant, and inspector departments. The Marine Corps made it clear that the same rules and regulations necessary for male Marines were required for all women. Recruiters were specifically instructed to search for women of excellent character, neat appearance, and they were required to have office experience. The women who were selected were enlisted as privates in the Marine Corps Reserve and had an enlistment term of four years. Marine Florence Gertler spoke about her experience. Quote, Male non-commissioned officers went up and down the line asking questions about experience, family responsibilities, etc., and by the process of elimination got the line down to a few hundred. Applicants were interviewed by one officer and finally given a stenographic test. Colonel McLemore conducted the shorthand test and dictated so fast that one after another left the room. One by one, those who remained were taken into Colonel McLemore's office and told to read back their notes. If the colonel was satisfied with our reading, we were required to type our notes and timed for speed and accuracy. More and more applicants dropped by the wayside until only five of us were left. We were told to report back the next day for a physical examination. Unquote. Within a week, the five women mentioned by Gertler were sworn in and issued orders for Headquarter Marine Corps in Washington, D.C. The selection process was challenging. It wasn't uncommon that only five out of 2,000 volunteers would make it to the next stage. A total of only 305 women were selected. Elizabeth Shoemaker originally failed her assessment. She was a speed stenographer who worked in New York City and it seemed like she should have passed a test with flying colors. She arrived at the recruiting station early, but the line was still around the block and continued down the street. When it was finally her turn, she sat for the typing test but didn't do too well. She failed and was sent home. But in the true spirit of a Marine, she didn't give up, and the next day she marched right back to that recruiter's office. She was approached by a colonel who recognized her, and he asked if she was here yesterday. Shoemaker confirmed that she was there the day prior. The colonel leaned over, shook her hand, and said, quote, That's the spirit that will lick the Germans. I will allow you to take the test again. Unquote. Shoemaker passed her second test, headed to D.C. for duty, and was assigned as the secretary to the chief clerk in the office of the adjutant and inspector. The standards for male Marines applied to female Marines as well. They were Marines, simple as that. So when the nicknames such as Skirt Marines, Lady Hellcats, and Marinette started to pop up, the Marine Corps and women hated it. Corporal Avendy Hay recalled, quote, They posted notices every once in a while on the bulletin board. We were not to be called Marinettes. The Marine Corps didn't like it, unquote. Although some women were local to their new duty station, many had to relocate, 
The government lacked housing for women, so they were given $83.40 a month to help with rent. But finding housing was still a challenge in Washington. There was a housing shortage, and the country was in the middle of a pandemic. Women ended up throughout the city, living in the rooms of private houses, while others grouped together and rented apartments. When the War Council found out about the challenges, they moved 70 women to the Georgetown Preparatory School in Rockville, Maryland. Sergeant Margaret Powers was one of the 70, and she described the housing. Quote, it was a beautiful place with private rooms and excellent food prepared by a former tea room owner. The first uniforms for women were green, tailor-made two-piece suits for the winter and khaki in the summer. The suits had specially designed shirts, neckties, overcoats, and brown high-top shoes for winter and Oxfords for the summer. Their covers, or hats for any civilians listening, had the Marine Corps emblem. Women were also authorized to carry swagger sticks, which some of them did. The highest rank a woman could achieve was a sergeant, and the pay for their rank was the same as men. A private was $15, PFC $18, Corporal $21, and Sergeant $30 per month. The compensation was a shock for many women who were surprised they were getting paid at all. Private Ingrid Johnson stated, quote, I never expected to be paid for my services. I thought that we would receive only room and board, so you can imagine my surprise when my first paycheck came through. Unquote. But despite the hard work and dedication, women faced mixed reactions from male Marines. Some Marines felt recruiting females took the Corps down a notch, but this wasn't the mentality of most of the Corps. Women worked their asses off and were undoubtedly helping the Marine Corps. PFC Edith Macias stated, quote, The men did not look down or frown upon us. Actually, they were glad to have us. We were given a job to do, and we did it. We were definitely not considered decorative rather than practical, but were treated as professionals, unquote. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, World War I ended. With the armistice signed, the need for females to perform the Corps' clerical duties diminished. And on July 15th, the Commandant issued orders to inactivate all women before August 11th. The Marine Corps had a huge ceremony on their departure date to thank the women for their service. Major General Barnett, escorted by his staff and the Marine Corps band, completed a final inspection of the women on the lawn of the White House. The Secretary of the Navy gave a farewell speech. Corporal Elizabeth Shoemaker spoke about her experience and the speech. Quote, we stood in front of him in our uniforms, listening to every word of his eloquent speech. He said we had been good Marines, and he was proud of us. Then in his closing statements, he said, We will not forget you. As we embrace you in uniform today, we will embrace you without uniform tomorrow. Unquote. Commandant Barnett was asked to comment on the women during their time in service, and he said, quote, It is a pleasure, but not by any means an unexpected one, to be able to state that the service rendered by the reservists has been uniformly excellent. It has, in fact, been exactly what the intelligence and goodness of our countrywomen would lead one to expect, unquote. 
The women who served during World War I were considered veterans of the war, and they received full benefits, just as every other Marine. These benefits included eligibility for government insurance, compensation, medical treatment, a $60 bonus, and military burial in Arlington Cemetery. Women also received $1 per month until their end of their four-year contract, and rated the World War I Victory Medal and the Good Conduct Medal. Although women would be discharged from the Corps, World War I marked a new milestone for women in the United States. They proved themselves in the military and private organizations. Many new opportunities were available throughout the country, which was previously considered improper. Women during this time paved the road for better pay, better jobs, and better working conditions. Another topic that came out of women's contributions during World War I was the right to vote. The considerable role women played in World War I caused the debate to turn, and in 1919, President Woodrow Wilson supported the women's suffrage movement. Quote, Unless we enfranchise women, we shall have fought to safeguard a democracy, which to that extent we have never bothered to create. Unquote. The 19th Amendment was adopted on August 26, 1920, which stated that U.S. citizens' right to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. A little over two months later, women would vote in the United States for the first time. For over 20 years, the story of women serving in World War I was relatively quiet, and their contributions during the war seemed to be forgotten. When World War II kicked off, the United States found itself in a similar position to World War I, and on July 30, 1942, an amendment was added to the Naval Reserve Act, and the Marine Corps Women's Reserve was created. On November 7th, the Commandant officially approved the Women's Reserve, and it was formed February 1943. The Marine Corps was the last branch to stand up a Women's Reserve unit during World War I, and this was mostly because Commandant Lieutenant General Thomas Holcomb didn't want women in the Marine Corps. Less than a year after creating the Women's Reserve, Holcomb reflected on his original thoughts. Quote, like most other Marines, when the matter first came up, I didn't believe women could serve any useful purpose in the Marine Corps. Since then, I've changed my mind. Unquote. The decision to bring back female Marines was similar to World War I. The number of resources needed to support this war's effort was enormous. The Division of Plans and Policies conducted a study and recommended establishing a woman's reserve. In World War II, the reserve unit was significantly larger than World War I, and President Roosevelt initially authorized a strength of 500 officers and 6,000 enlisted by June 30th. A year later, the strength would increase to 1,000 officers and 18,000 enlisted. The initial breakdown of officers was one major, 35 captains, and 35% of the total number of commissioned officers as first lieutenants, and the rest second lieutenants. The women's reserves were no longer a handful of marines spread between multiple units. It was now a division, and someone was needed to lead that new reserve unit. The Commandant of the Marine Corps reached out to the Dean of Barnard College, Columbia University, Virginia Gildersleeve, 
and asked her for help finding qualified candidates to fill this role. Gildersleeve took up the Commandant's offer, and she presented him with her committee's recommendation of 12 women to lead this new unit. After an intense vetting process, the Marine Corps selected Ruth Streeter to lead the new Marines, making her the first director of the United States Marine Corps Women's Reserve. The other military branches had similar initiatives taking place. The Navy had their reserve and called their women WAVES, which stood for Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. The Army had WACS, the Women's Army Corps, and the Coast Guard had SPARS, an acronym for Semper Paratus, Always Ready, which I found redundant. Semper Paratus is the Coast Guard model and it means Always Ready, so the translation of the acronym is Always ready, always ready. The Marine Corps didn't take that stance. Similar to World War I, congressmen and the media tried to give women Marines a nickname. Mars was a popular one, and so was Femarines. There was also the term women's leatherneck aides, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Colonel Waller recommended to the Commandant, quote, Women reservists of the United States Marine Corps will not be especially designated as in the case of WAVES or SPARS, but will be called Marines. These women will not be auxiliary, but members of the Marine Corps Reserve, which is an integral part of the Corps, and as they will be performing many duties of Marines, it was felt they should be so known. Unquote. When the Corps officially announced they were recruiting women, a flood of applications came into the recruiter's office. There were so many applicants that one officer complained that his staff was getting behind in their work. From college students to grandmothers, women rushed stations to apply to be a Marine. But not everyone could be chosen, and the Marine Corps had a strict selection process. All women had to be a U.S. citizen. They couldn't be married to a Marine, nor could they have children less than 18 years of age. The minimum height requirements were 5 feet, and they had to weigh more than 95 pounds. Women also had to have good vision and good teeth. For enlisted Marines, you had to be between 20 and 35 years old, and completed two years of high school. Officers had to be between 20 and 49, and either have a college degree, or a combination of two years of college and two years of work experience. The Navy provided help to the Marine Corps and transferred women in their WAVES program to the Marine Reserves. A year after its creation, the Women's Reserve had a strength of almost 15,000. There were about 30 different MOSs, or jobs, for female Marines. But once they hit the fleet, it was quickly discovered that the concept of jobs only men could do was no longer valid, and the number of job classifications jumped to over 200. I'll have the full list up on historyofthemarinecorps.com under this episode's page if you want to take a look. But jobs ranged from automotive mechanic to chemical warfare specialist to small arms mechanic. Although the Marine Corps stressed that women Marines were Marines, their policies didn't align with their message. MOSs for women were broken down into four classifications, which assessed the appropriateness of women filling those roles. Class 1 were jobs in which women are better and more efficient than men. These were mostly clerical jobs. Class 2 were jobs in which women are as good as men. They included roles such as accounting and post-exchange clerks. 
A few mechanical roles fell under this classification as well. Class 3 jobs were jobs in which women weren't as good as men, but can be used effectively when the need is great, such as in wartime. These were motor mechanics, drivers, and mess duty. And class 4 jobs were jobs in which women cannot or should not be used at all. These positions are often related to excessive physical strength, such as stock handling in warehouses, driving heavy equipment, and heavy lifting in mess halls. It also included jobs that would see combat. Their authority was also undervalued, and female officers only had authority over the women's reserves. In a Commandant of the Marine Corps letter, dated November 25, 1943, he stated that in day-to-day -day operations, quote, the relationship of women officers or non-commissioned officers to enlisted men in the administration of their work is similar to that of a civilian teacher in a military school. While the women officer may give instructions in connection with their work, matters of discipline should be referred to the man's commanding officer, unquote. The commandant would change his tune four months later, and he issued the following statement, quote, it is concluded that it is entirely proper for a woman officer to be assigned to duty subordinate to a commanding officer, and her directions and orders in the proper performance of such duty are the acts of the officer in command, even though such orders are directed to male personnel. Unquote. During mid-1944, Congress started to consider sending women Marines overseas. Politicians argued for more than a year about the Naval Reserve Act of 1938, and the tides were turning towards approval. On September 13th, the Senate passed a bill titled Public Law 441, 78th Congress. It was adopted by the House and signed into law two weeks later. This new regulation authorized, quote, female naval personnel to serve on a volunteer basis anywhere within the Western Hemisphere, including Alaska and Hawaii, unquote. Volunteers for overseas duty came flooding in, and the Marine Corps began their selection process. Almost 1,000 women would make the cut. The authorization also saw another first in Marine Corps history, the first time two active duty Marines would get married. In May 1945, Staff Sergeant Robert T. Davis married Sergeant Dorothy Jean Crane. Most of their guests were Marines, and I can only imagine how fun that reception must have been. As World War II came to an end, the Marine Corps began its demobilization plans for the women's reserves. The Corps issued orders that all women were to be discharged in a year. The Commandant came a long way from his original take on women in the Marine Corps, and he stated, quote, it was with some hesitation the Marine Corps admitted women to its ranks in February 1943, but during the intervening years, they have made a most valuable contribution to the Corps. As the time comes to release them, I am reminded again of the important parts they have played in support of our combat Marines. I wish to express to the members of the Women Reserves the appreciation of the Marine Corps for the valuable contribution they have made for its success. They have performed their duties in a manner that evokes the admiration and praise of their fellow Marines, and their conduct and appearance, both on and off duty, have been exemplary and a source of pride to us all." Unquote. A two-week rehabilitation school was established for women transferring out of the Corps, 
and provided information about their rights and their benefits, which included medical and the GI Bill. Transitioning Marines took a poll that asked what their plans were after the Marine Corps. The most popular plans in this order were to find new employment, go to school, go back to their old job, become a housewife, and civil service. At the end of the war, women in the Marine Corps had a strength of 18,460, 820 of whom were officers. Women commanded 35 units in the Marine Corps. The value women brought to the Marine Corps was indisputable, and soon, the Department of the Navy started to feel the impact. Colonel Joseph Knighton was the legal aide to the Commandant, General Vandergrift, and he spoke with him about the Army and the Navy's plan to keep women on duty. He asked the Commandant two simple questions. One, does the Marine Corps want women in its regular peacetime establishment? Two, if the answer is negative, can the Marine Corps justify this stance if the Army and the Navy have concluded that women should be included in their peacetime establishment? These two questions changed the future of the Corps. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll take a look at female Marines after World War II. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is Code Girls, The Untold Story of the American Women Codebreakers of World War II by Liza Mundy. There were around 10,000 women codebreakers during World War II. In fact, the first American to hear about the war ending was a woman who intercepted a message from the Japanese to the Swiss agreeing to an unconditional surrender. This book dives into some fascinating stories about the women who took on this role during World War II, and the author talks about the selection process, the mission, challenges, and accomplishments of female codebreakers and their contributions to science and technology. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help will be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.